In the 1990s, a book started circulating in the conspiracy community that would go on to be extremely influential to the modern-day conspiracy movement. Pandemics, aliens, secret societies, assassinations, faked space programs, this book had it all. This is the story of that book and of the man who wrote it. This is the story of Bill Cooper and Beyond a Pale Horse. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, everyone. Hi, Nathan. We've been hurtling towards this episode for a while. Yeah. This is an important one. We're going to be talking about a guy that the listeners might not have heard of, except maybe they've heard us reference him. Yeah, they've him heard like us talking times. about him. This guy isn't necessarily that well-known. but Not he's anymore. Un- he was pretty well-known. He known. was for a while in some circles. Yeah, that's true. In shortwave radio conspiracy circles in the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. In hip-hop circles in New York in the 90s. Yeah. But this guy's ideas are unbelievably influential. If you know his work, you know a lot of the ideas that are floating around in the conspiratorial spaces today. They really have their root in William Cooper. Yeah. So we need to talk about William Cooper because his ideas are so influential. And also, I think his story is a bit tragic and we can learn some lessons from it. Yeah, okay. I'm going to start it off by going back to somebody that we've referenced a few times, Gray Barker. Gray Barker. Gray Barker in the 1950s, at the beginning of the UFO movement, he senses that there's a business opportunity to be had here. He's a guy who works at a movie theater deciding which movies to show. And so he's got kind of an eye for capturing the zeitgeist. What are people going to want to hear? What are people going to want to see? And so when the UFO movement starts in the late 40s, Gray Barker is there and he starts publishing. He publishes magazines and books. And they're unbelievably influential and we've talked about them before. He was also a scammer and a con artist. And he ran all sorts of scams where he would take photographs of things like pie plates and pretend they were UFOs. (laughs) But I'm sure it all seemed pretty harmless. Yeah. I'm sure it was all pretty goofy. It was a bit of a lark for Gray Barker. Yeah. Now, as the years go on, Gray Barker, who was at first like right there at the tip of the spear of the UFO community, he kind of recedes into the background. Other people come up and are more important. Gray Barker's kind of forgotten. Yeah. But he's still out there in the 80s. Yeah. He's still out there. He's still, he's still got Saucerian press. Right. He's still putting out stuff. Well, in 1984, Gray Barker starts to get some essays from a man named William Cooper. Okay. And Gray Barker is reading these essays, and he thinks, wow, this Cooper guy, he's clearly been reading my work. Okay. Because he has believed all of it. He is like, fully committed to the idea of UFOs and aliens and abductions and the whole thing. In fact, Barker is a little bit nervous about how much Cooper believes this stuff. Because Barker, of course, knows that a lot of the stuff he wrote was nonsense. Right. It was lies. And so when Barker comes across Cooper, this guy who has clearly taken it all in and believed it all, Barker's slightly concerned about it. Sure. But the guy's also writing some wild stuff. 
and it's going to make great content. Right. <laughs> you can't turn you can't turn that down. You can't turn that down. And so Barker, who still has that, he still has the eye of like a of of a good PR person. Yeah. He's like, this is this is dynamite. This right. is this is disturbing dynamite. Okay. And so Barker starts to publish Cooper's work in Barker's journals. Okay. So what are some of the things that Cooper believes at this point? Mm-hmm. Cooper argues that he has basically been fully convinced by the MJ-12 documents. Mm-hmm. So we need to very briefly, I mean, this is something we've talked about a bunch of times, so we can just very briefly talk about MJ-12. MJ-12 are a group of forged documents that purport that the United States has a secret group that is liaising with aliens and has, you know, crashed alien tech. Yeah. And that is what Cooper is saying. Cooper is telling Barker. Well, I'll I'll read a little bit. Okay. So this part is Barker commenting on what Cooper is about to write. I received a packet from Cooper that started off with the statement that follows. It is somewhat dramatic and over the top, but this is not unusual in the field of E.T. buffery. In fact, it seems that Cooper has been keeping up with recent issues of my Gray Barker's newsletter, as many of his beliefs seem to run parallel to some of our reportage in recent years. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but I feel that it is my duty to give this patriotic veteran a platform to express his views. If only a fraction of what he says is true, our officials have a whole lot of explaining to do. Uh-huh. That's an interesting way to lead into something. Mm-hmm. So what Barker is saying is, Cooper believes what I've written. Right. I don't necessarily I don't agree really, with him. I'm not sure it's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't agree with what I've written, <laughs> but Cooper agrees with what I've written. So this is how it starts off then, from Cooper. This article contains the absolute true information regarding the alien presence on Earth and the U.S. government's involvement with the aliens. It contains only the information as I saw it. It does not contain any information from any other source. I admit that I underwent hypnotic regression in order to make the information as accurate as possible. I swear that I can and will take a lie detector test or any other test by any reputable persons in order to confirm this information. I will not, however, submit to any test or hypnosis by anyone who is now with, or who has ever been connected with, the U.S. government in any capacity, for obvious reasons. The following is a brief listing of everything that I personally saw and know from 1972, and does not contain any input from any other source whatsoever. Majesty was listed as the code word for the President of the United States for communications concerning this information. Operation Majority is the name of the operation responsible for every aspect, project, and consequence of alien presence on Earth. Project Grudge contains 16 volumes of documented information collected from the beginning of the U.S. investigation of unidentified flying objects and identified alien craft. This early project was funded by CIA confidential funds. The purpose of Project Grudge was to collect all scientific, technological, medical, and intelligence information from UFO sightings and contacts with alien life forms. MJ-12 is the name of the secret control group. President Dwight D. Eisenhower commissioned a secret society known as the Jason Society to sift through all of the facts, evidence, technology, lies, and deception and find the truth of the alien question. The society was made up of 32 of the most prominent men in the country in 1972, and the top 12 members were designated MJ-12. MJ-12 has total control of everything. MJ-12 runs most of the world's illegal drug trade, This was done to hide funding and thus keep the secret from Congress and the people. It was justified in that it would identify and eliminate the weak elements of our society. The cost of funding the alien-connected projects is higher than anything you can imagine. 
MJ-12 assassinated President Kennedy when he informed them that he was going to tell the public all the facts of the alien presence. He was killed by the Secret Service agent driving his car. And this is plainly visible in the full Zapruder film, which was altered before the public viewed it. And it goes on like that. Yes, and, it it tells, and it tells a story of how basically everything that's happening in the world is actually part of this secret story. Mm-hmm. The secret story of how the American government knows that there are aliens and they are going to great lengths to try to conceal it. Yeah, I think the way I, I've been trying to conceptualize William Cooper for our episode is as a grand synthesizer. He does add a few new bits here and there, but really what you have with William Cooper is you have the alien conspiracy narrative, which, as we have said over and over again, including on our last episode, is a mess and has a whole bunch of stuff going on. But of course, in the world of conspiracies, you have secret societies, you have presidential assassinations, you have illegal drug trade and how that might be used or set up, government conspiracies, essentially. And he brings all of these conspiracies together. All of them suddenly are wrapped up into this mega conspiracy. That, and, the, that the MJ-12 are behind everything. Exactly. So really with Cooper, I think what you have first and foremost is a secret society conspiracy. That really structures everything. What we are interested in in this episode is his development of the UFO narrative and his influence in that community. In his world, it really comes down first and foremost to the fact that there is a secret society and it runs everything. The MJ-12 then, in the MJ-12 documents, is sort of proof positive that this is happening. Mm-hmm. I don't think in Cooper, Barker sees a fellow hoaxer. No. I think in Cooper, Barker sees somebody that has been convinced Yeah. of things that Barker is totally unconvinced by because he knows that he's the hoaxer. Right. Now, at the same time, it is fascinating, just in that brief selection that I read, the Jason Society is real. Yes. And have gotten up to some pretty wild things. Yes. I mean... See uh, all our episodes with Shelley. Yeah. Uh, like Project Seesaw. Yeah. The, the wildest thing that we've ever uncovered yeah. was the Jason Society. So they do exist. They do exist. And look, secret societies exist. Secret societies exist. I mean, that's, that's no secret. <laughs> In the 1980s, did the American government had, have kind of a sketchy relationship with drug dealers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that goes way back to one of our first episodes. Yeah. Somewhere in there with the CIA, the cocaine crack, cartel. Crack specifically. Crack, co- crack specifically and Iran-Contra. Yeah. And so, I mean, Cooper's not 100% wrong on some of this stuff. Well, that's, that's actually a problem with a lot of his work, is yeah. that he is partially right with a bunch of things that he says, but then he adds so much extra nonsense or hyperbolic rhetoric to it and and really swings for the fences is really reaching for the most bizarre and outlandish conclusions based on some of the things that are kind of true it makes disentangling his work rather complex yeah so we're gonna leave gray barker here okay and we're gonna leave gray barker here because Gray Barker's done with this story now. Like, he's done with it with his life. He is at the end of his life. He's sick and tired of the UFO thing. Yeah. And we've got new people who are going to start picking up this story, like Cooper. Yeah. And so Gray Barker also dies. Right. But 
what he has done continues lives on. <laughs> lives on. It lives on in people like William Cooper. So William Cooper, throughout the eighties, he starts doing some like shortwave radio shows, mm-hmm. uh, which get a small audience. He's he's putting out what we would have called zines back in the day. Yep. When you do some like frantic photocopying and you and you cut and paste and you put stuff together and send it out to a an actual mailing list. Yeah. Like an actual list of people's addresses, and then you send it out. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> And then, eventually, Cooper is encouraged to write all of his stuff down Mm -hmm. in one book. Mm -hmm. And now we've arrived, finally, at one of the most important conspiracy texts of all time, Behold a Pale Horse. Behold a Pale Horse. Nathan and I each have a copy in front of us. The cover itself is quite striking. Behold a Pale Horse is a reference from the Book of Revelation. It is about the end times. In fact, should I read it out? Because he has the citation right at the beginning of the book. Yeah. And this is his version. I've, I've I've looked at slightly other translations, but here we go. And I looked, and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat upon him was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with beasts of the earth. So that's the reference that Behold a Pale Horse makes reference to. That's a rather clunky sentence, but okay. You want to do it again? I don't know. That is the citation that Behold a Pale Horse makes reference to. And this is also an element in William Cooper's thinking is this... Apocalyptic... Yeah, but I'm thinking a bit like shoot-from-the-hip theology. Like, he really makes some very interesting connections. So He takes but, some big swings. But certainly, theology, especially around the end times, and that the Holy Bible might be a kind of guide to understanding what is happening right now through signs and symbols and that kind of stuff, is an element of his thinking. And so, this is really a kind of a tome of conspiratorial work in large part, as I said earlier, because it synthesizes all these strands and makes one giant conspiracy out of it. And this is, I think, a concept that we have maybe mentioned before. There are conspiracies that one or another person might be into, and they could be rather discreet. Say, as an example, which you and I did an episode on both don't believe but you could um, you could have somebody say i think that princess diana was murdered by the royal family sure okay and that's a thing and that person goes on with their life and that's just a belief that they have that, that's a thing that happened in the world it's a thing that happened which they have a belief about yeah now that's a conspiracy theory but you can then get another version of that which Nathan and I have come to call conspiracism, which is a totalizing worldview where everything is part of a conspiracy. It's not just that Princess Diana was killed by the royal family. It's that the royal family is part of some secret elite who rule all of society and everything that has ever happened, every monumental event from World War I to World War II to this economic collapse, the moon landing, all of it is in some way tied up with 
a fundamental conspiratorial narrative. And if you pay close enough attention to pop culture, you can see evidence everywhere that exactly. people have secretly been been placing hints in episodes of The Simpsons right. or in Stanley Kubrick films. Exactly. And I think actually you get the very concept of sheeple from him. Is that right? Because I seem to it's, it's all certainly kind of, an early proponent of it. Yeah. So he has he definitely has this dichotomy of sleeping and awake. And he talks about how he used to be asleep and now he's awake and now he sees. And he makes very tenuous connections, but they're only tenuous if you assume that this underlying conspiracy isn't there. If you start with the assumption that the underlying conspiracy is there, that there is a secret world government and there's only one, they rule all of society, etc., etc., then you are able to start making these connections where, well, why was that film released at that point with that narrative? That's telling us something or hiding something from us. So, I mean, the world is a big, complicated, chaotic, confusing mess. Yeah. There is something unbelievably seductive about a worldview, a totalist worldview that says, hey, I'm going to explain everything. Yeah, and you can start figuring it out yourself, and then that makes you smarter than absolutely everybody else except the very small group of people who also know this. So that's what this book is. Behold a Pale Horse is his totalist worldview in book form. Yeah. Now, I think something crucial to say at this point, I think you'll probably agree with me, I don't think Cooper is a scammer. No, I would agree with you as well. I think that he is, if anything, a victim. I mean... He does have a radio show, especially in the 90s. He has this book. He goes on speaking tours. He is heavily invested in this community. And so it is maybe difficult to disentangle him from previous people like Ray Barker or the others who were just clearly running scams. I mean, mean, the difference isn't that they're both asking for money because, of course, they both are. The difference is that Gray Barker knows he's lying. Right. And Cooper thinks he's giving the truth. Yeah, you're right. And in some cases, is. And I believe you, but I'm just not, I don't have 100% evidence. I mean, I'm just going by his talks. I mean, you listen to a Gray Barker talk, and he also pretends he believes what he's saying. Yes, but then you read his correspondence, and he's he's like, oh, I can't believe I had to write this one, and this one's ridiculous, and this is nonsense. Although, and this is maybe so inside baseball, nobody else will care, but I do, I have started to also question that question itself. Like, if that even matters anymore. Because at the end, the result is the same. If you believe the scam, or if you scammed yourself, or got scammed by somebody else, you're part and parcel of the same kind of scammy ecosystem. I see what you mean as far as the consequences. I do still think that there is a difference, though. Well, there is for the individual, but... Even, I think, for the content of, of the material that they're delivering, mm. I think somebody who is fully aware that they're scamming is a more flexible scammer. Yeah, okay. Whereas if you believe it, I think that's a bit trickier, and you have to do... Like, you can't just jump from thing to thing easily because you're actually believing it. So you're, less, you're a less good scammer if you believe it yourself. I mean, in some ways you're better because I think... Your sincerity comes through. Yeah. But in some ways, I think you're worse because you can't just sort of engineer your material to fit in with what people want to hear because, unfortunately, what's getting in the way is your actual belief. Okay. So, like you, I believe that he is a true believer. I Though I do hold out just the potential, but I also, at the same time, 
don't think it's that relevant. And yet we spent a lot of time on it. Uh, Okay, let me though, maybe I'll just give you a couple of uh, Wikipedia facts, you know, just so we can sort of place him. Right. Uh, So his full name is Milton William Cooper. He's born in 1943, and he dies on the 5th of November in 2001, and this is important, he dies in a shootout with the police. Yeah. And this sort of, in a way, adds to his credibility. Because why would that happen if he didn't... I mean, you had something interesting to say about Alex Jones before we were on air. I mean, Alex Jones is another one of these, what, what Richard Hofstadter calls the paranoid spokesman. Right. The people who have a totalist worldview and they're selling it to the masses. And for somebody like Alex Jones, who says that there is this massive battle between good and evil, and there's like these demonic forces and, and he's fighting against them and they're a threat and a danger. The problem with somebody like Jones is there's always a question people can ask him. Why are you alive how are you allowed to say these things if what you say is true? Right, because if what Alex Jones is saying is true, somebody within the deep state should have taken him out by now. Yeah, and they haven't. Right. Now, you can't say that about William Cooper. He's not killed by feds, but he is killed by cops. He's killed by law enforcement. He's killed by the government. And if his theory is right, then it's all the same thing. Yeah. I mean, they're all just working for the same underlying secret society, if they know it or not. So going along with, again, his, his story. So he's in the Vietnam War. Yeah. He's on those river boats in the Vietnam yeah, War. Yeah. I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been. No, you're right. To be in a little unarmored boat in the middle of the night in a narrow little river, there's snipers on all sides. You're a kid with a 50 caliber machine gun just shooting off into the forest. It would have been unbelievably difficult and terrorizing mm-hmm. for, for Cooper to have been in that situation. Yep. Now, he though claims that he was part of naval intelligence. That part isn't as established, I would say. I would say it's not established. Yeah. I mean, like, he makes a claim that he is privy to top secret information. Mm-hmm. And if he was part of naval intelligence, he may have been sort of at the front desk kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he's not, because this is going to be important for a lot of the claims he makes later, he, he does not have the access to stuff that he says he's going to have access to. Except he does claim that he had Q clearance. Right. Which is a phrase that should ring in the ears of anybody who's listening to this podcast. Yeah. Q clearance. Q clearance. Of course, the problem with that is... Q clearance isn't the Navy, it's the, it's the Department of Energy. Mm. The Q clearance doesn't mean what the conspiracy world thinks Q clearance means. No. It is top-level clearance, but specifically having to do with nuclear power. Yeah. And, yeah, and it still doesn't allow you to poke around and find out everything about everything. No, it does not. Because that's also one of the things about secrecy in probably all military and industrial complex states, but certainly in the American system... If you have clearance for certain things that you're, that's necessary for your work, that doesn't mean that you get to like go down to whatever the, well, the archive yeah, you and just, just show rifle up. around and be like, oh, I'm curious about, do we have aliens or, or... I mean, we know somebody who had Q clearance. Yes, we do. We won't say who. So 
So then let's get into the content of this book, because we've already introduced Cooper when he was writing to Barker back in the 80s. Yeah. But by the time this book comes along, he's changed his mind about some stuff in yeah. a really interesting way. So, but... Oh. I mean, this book is a mess. It's a hard read. It's a mess. And this it is, needs an editor. Uh, to say the least. But so the reason that I'm struggling to kind of provide a synthesis of this book is because it is just about everything that has happened from the 50s until he's writing in the 90s, where he essentially is the sole person to have put it all together and figured it all out. And what makes it trickier, and I've, I've almost never seen this in a book, he changes his mind in the book. Yeah. Like he starts off saying one thing, and then later in the book, he's like, no, 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 that's not true. Yeah. It's like, but then you should have taken that bit out. I really feel like he sat down at a typewriter and he banged it out. And when a page was done, that was done. Yeah. And sent to the publisher, you know? So, so the book itself is a, a collection of essays that he wrote. Yep. And then some other written material from other sources. The source of those sources gets a bit tricky because I think some of the things that he says come from other places are actually still him writing. Mm -hmm. And then some of them are not. So it is a very difficult read. <laughs> it's a very difficult read for that reason. Also because it's just all over the place. I mean, it really is a conceptual mess. Now, this is a very difficult book to try to describe. So here's what we're going to do with it. Because we're talking about Cooper right now in the context of the way that we understand UFOs and aliens in our society, mm. we're going to concentrate on that part of it. Also, because I think that is his gateway into the rest of it anyway. Yeah. I think that's how he is introduced to this sort of conspiratorial world. I think that is where he begins to build up some of these other ideas. Uh, so we're going to concentrate on that part of it. And also because he makes such a fascinating move, and I think un unusual in alien circles, to spoil what he's going to do, he's going to switch from believing in aliens to thinking that the belief in aliens is like a government psyop. Yeah, he totally changes his mind. Yeah. And there's really interesting reasons for that too. Yeah, so that's what we're going to concentrate on today. Overall, the book is is a story of Manichaeism. Yeah, which is this battle between good and evil. There is a battle between good and evil. Now, for Cooper, it is overtly the Christian battle between good and evil. Mm -hmm. It is Christianity versus satanic forces. Mm -hmm. He explicitly states that. Mm -hmm. But the satanic forces are represented by a group of elite. Right. They have many names, they yep. have many faces, but they are all part of this one movement to generate a crooked game out of the world. Yep. The world is a crooked game. You know it's a crooked game. Listening to this right now, you know the world is a crooked game. And Cooper is saying, here are the players that are rigging it. Yeah. And we're going to come back to that next year when we talk a lot about the Illuminati. Yeah, spoiler alert, that's going to be our sweet series for the following year. So what we'll concentrate right now is just Cooper's relationship with UFOs and aliens. Okay. Let's do it. So we're in the chapter on secret government. So that's already uh, towards the end of the book. And uh, basically what you get is you get a 
summary of UFO history as he sees it, which is a, quite a contrast to what we did in our previous episode, where we just kind of did a cursory summary of what we've been doing all year. But it starts with the claim that aliens have crashed in, especially New Mexico. Interestingly, he does mention Aztec. Because he kind of knows his stuff. Yeah. I, I think he has read a ton of things. Yeah, 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 exactly. So for him to talk about Aztec rather than Roswell right away, I'm like, okay, Cooper, you have done your research. Except then he does talk about Roswell. Right. And then he's like, and that's where we got an extraterrestrial being. An EBE. An EBE, which those are the words in the MJ-12 documents, aren't they? Yep. Extraterrestrial extraterrestrial EBE. what's the b stand for biological, biological entity. entity there we go extraterrestrial biological right. entity eb who is also the name of the creature right that's the what that's what they named him mm -hmm. eb okay so eb is a liar eb <laughs> huh. eb is a liar and at that is is obfuscates when when the government is asking the questions about him so he is in captivity in 51 and 52 but he, yeah, in 51, he becomes ill and uh, he dies in 52. Now, this is important because Cooper argues that actually the aliens need our DNA. So this is a new development, right? Why are the aliens coming here? Well, from the 50s onwards, it was to protect us from ourselves because we're becoming technologically so advanced. But now we have this new reason, which is that the aliens themselves represent a kind of biological dead end. They have evolved so far that they're almost kind of regressing or collapsing, and they require our DNA. And this was something that... In it's like an old person drinking a young person's blood. Yeah, there you go. And so this is something that in the 50s we weren't able to help them with, but it, it then sets this scene for why are the aliens doing all these abductions? You know, what's going on? What's the background? Well, the background is in part, there's other things going on too, but in part it's to, to harvest some of our biological material that they can use to help themselves. Okay, now so far this is some interesting stuff, but it's also not that new. We saw a lot of this in the 70s. A yeah. lot of this came out with the cattle mutilation stuff, these theories that the aliens were harvesting us, the abductions in the 70s. So he's drawing from UFO lore. Yes. But he's not bringing anything new at this point. Not yet. Although, again, I think what he mostly does, like he is not important in our story because of the novelty he brings to it, although we are going to get to the underground bases and things like that. What I think is important is his cultural impact in synthesizing all these strands into a new coherent story in the 90s. And I think this is part of it, right? So, so they're coming. It's already, it's been going on since the 50s. They've been crashing. The, the United States government has been in contact with them, has known about them since the late 40s and the early 50s. And the next point that he makes now is, this is all under Truman. Truman creates the NSA, and this goes back to your earlier point about how it's really all about secret societies and everything is part of it. The NSA exists as a liaison group to talk to the aliens. And out of that will then come the MJ-12, who are the real kind of leaders, and they're the ones who are really going to talk to the aliens. 
So then Eisenhower takes over from Truman, and we have the establishment of Project Plato. Now, I tried really hard to find any information on Project Plato outside of Behold a Pale Horse. And I couldn't, in large part, because there are very legit projects by various universities that are like, you know, either they're general education projects or they're specifically about the philosopher Plato or you get into Plato's works. So have you, did you encounter anything around Project Plato? No, for the same reason. Okay. So apparently this was the, the, the secret code name of the project that established official diplomatic ties with the aliens. So that's apparently, this is still under Eisenhower, so we're still in the 50s. Around this time, another group of aliens shows up, and they warn us that the earlier group is actually kind of dangerous. And this, I know we have this already, but again, as a synthesizer, he's sort of now bringing in the, you know, it's not just one group of aliens that's visiting us. It'll turn out later that it's actually, as we develop the story beyond Cooper, that it's actually three different distinct alien species might even be four really the redheads oh there's the redheads too okay see i didn't even i don't remember when we encountered them there's a a whole thing there's the greens the grays and the nordics those are the ones i know and the redheads and the redheads eh there's the large-nosed grays with whom we have a treaty okay then now this is from barker's book Mm mm-hmm then there's also the greys reported in abductee cases that work for the large-nosed greys. So there's two greys, okay, two kinds of greys. Okay. There's the blonde humanoid types described as the Nordics. Right. And the red-haired humanoid types called the orange. Oh, well, there we are. But no greens in this in this. No, workout. just the big-nosed greys. Okay. As we say, the, the, the lore develops beyond, beyond Cooper. But so once official diplomatic relations are set up with the aliens... We make a treaty which stipulates that we're not going to, that is to say, the American government that knows what's going on isn't going to divulge any information about the aliens. And we're going to allow limited abductions for testing purposes. Okay. Now, again, this is just a sort of like the same history that we have recounted, but from the perspective of a true believer. All documents that he has seen, MJ-12 going back, into this period are true. And so this is the narrative as he understands it. Turns out, though, that the aliens have deceived Eisenhower and their abductions are running amok. They're abducting more people than they're supposed to. They're not returning them safely. Some people are being mutilated. Some people's memories aren't being fully erased. And so we don't like it by we again, we're talking about the secret American government, but we don't have the tech to fight them. So we just kind of got to make nice with them. And that's what the whole really relationship boils down to from the 70s to the 90s is that we don't really have enough technology in order to, to resist the aliens and what they want to do. We're, so our government is going along with it. But the hope is that we're going to become more technologically advanced so that we are able to take it to them. But that's not that's not happened yet. Most of this is 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 based on his reading of the MJ-12 documents, as well as a sort of smattering of UFO lore. A lot of Gray Barker like pamphlets and just sort of classic some of the '70s cattle mutilation stuff. Exactly, he's just putting together stuff that that has already been sort of out there for a while. 
And that's why we're not going to debunk it. Because we have episodes on each one of these things, including why the MJ-12 documents are not a valid source at all. So if you're already writing a book and your primary source for the information are the MJ-12 documents, plus some regression hypnosis and a bunch of stuff written by scammers, it's not credible. So we know, and we know this with him, like, I, so I don't think that we should spend too much of the episode actually trying to debunk MJ-12. Also, because this is where he's starting. Right. But this isn't where he's going to finish. No. Well, exactly. So it turns out that he knows through, again, all this investigative research that he's been doing that the earth is coming to a cataclysmic end due to over mostly due to overpopulation this is in part because of the baby boom after the second world war but also advances in medicine etc cetera, etc cetera. these are themselves actually again not wrong right there was a baby boom after the war there there have been advances in medicine world population did increase after the second world war but now for listeners who've followed us along this year what does he say is going to happen well not alternative one exactly not alternative two exactly but alternative three there is the alternative three hypothesis where again verbatim like he's read the book he cites the author he cites uh people who've used these works and alternative one if you remember is using nuclear devices to blast holes in the ozone yeah that one doesn't make any sense well neither do the other two but still that one makes uh, the least sense build underground cities uh is alternative two that's what i'm going for alternative three is get off the earth yep and and here too he buys the whole alternative three-story hook, line, and sinker. That is to say, the whole NASA space program was a ruse. By the time Kennedy suggested we should go to the moon, we'd already been there. We knew that there was life on Mars, that it was an arable atmosphere. You could get over there. You have to understand that we're all watching a movie all the time. That's basically the argument of this sort of totalist conspiratorial worldview, mm. that the world around us, all of the things that we see... Even things like like wars and natural disasters and everything. It's all manipulated. It's all controlled. It's all part of a movie that we are shown so that we don't look behind the curtain at the real world. It's like Plato's Cave. Yeah. He's telling kind of the story of Plato's Cave. Yeah. And it, so, and, and that's why you might be confused and say, say, wait, so the moon landing was faked because they had already been to the moon? And yes, that's, that's how this sort of thought process works. Everything that we see is a lie. Everything we see is a fabrication. Right. Exactly. So Kennedy, who you had already mentioned, was apparently going to reveal all of this to the American citizens. And so he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And here, I just bring it up again because you see this kind of also this totalizing momentum where everything that is happening historically is subsumed in this narrative of there's a secret world government. It is hiding the fact of aliens from us. And so everything can be explained in that light. Everything has to do with the one story. Exactly. He suggests that later HIV AIDS is humanly created in order to deal with the impending population explosion that again, so HIV, now this is, you know, we talked about this in a K 
KGB Soviet disinformation episode. This is Soviet disinformation's one of their most successful projects. But he is taking that and incorporating it too into the Alternative 3, MJ-12, Secret Society hypothesis. So, so far, just in this brief description of Cooper's work, he's like a giant vacuum cleaner. Yeah. He's sucked in some real things. Yeah. He has sucked in some real things, government corruption, uh, secret government experiments, that kind of thing. So he sucked in some real things. He sucked in some pop culture things, things like Alternative 3. Yeah. He sucked in some disinformation campaigns by intelligence agencies yeah. like Operation Infection from the KGB. Yeah. He sucked them all in. Yeah. He's not shuffling them up. He's not like parsing them and saying, this is disinformation, this is truth. He's like, it's all, it's all coming in. Yep. It's all equally good. Yep. And it's all going in this one big story. Yeah. And it just keeps going like this, which is why the book is a bit of a mess to try and re-narrate. The next point is that the... American government has gotten a hold of the, has cornered the market, in his words, of the illicit drug trade. And this is actually being used then to fund the black projects like Alternative 3. So otherwise the American people would be suspicious where they're, all their tax dollars going. Well, it's when actually... really it was being used to fight governments in Central America, but that's a different story. That is a different story. All of these are different stories. Yeah. I mean, that could be the subtitle of this episode, you know, William Cooper's different stories. But that's the thing. Like he's telling this from this... And he keeps positing himself as the insider. Mm -hmm. So he says, now, of course, we know that the MJ-12 documents are forgeries dating to the early 80s, between 80 and 83, Doty and another guy. He claims, maybe in part because of the regression that you mentioned earlier, to have, to have gotten a hold of these documents, to have seen these documents in 72, 73 as an officer of naval intelligence. So he's positing himself in the book as an insider who's blowing the whistle and letting people know the things that are clearly obvious once you put the pieces together. He also starts talking about underground bases and tunnels. And this is these are the layers where the aliens who are here are living and are interacting with our governments. So now he's, now he's gotten into some American Air Force disinformation because that's from Doty as well. Right, exactly. And connecting it with then these kind of semi-secret places like Raven Rock and what was the Cheyenne Mountain and these, these kind of bunker places. Which do exist. Which do exist, but he claims that there is currently at any moment a shadow government that is there ready to take over at any at at you know when when the puppet government that is there for our benefit collapses or is in peril or something like that he believes that almost everybody he has been in contact with from these groups and these are names that our audience know they're names that we have encountered bob lazar he thinks he's a cia shell everybody's a fed Everybody, uh, John Lear, who is the uh, multimillionaire, if not more, benefactor of a lot of these UFO researchers. He's probably CIA. Shandera, Moore, these are the Friedman. guys. Friedman. Friedman. Uh, Klass, Philip Klass, who is uh, a big UFO kind of debunker. The cranky anti-UFO guy. Yeah, he's trying to make sense of the phenomenon, I think, in the 70s mostly. And he's like, oh, yeah. 
all of these guys work for the CIA. So all of them are not credible, but he is credible. He has gotten a hold of secret information. This tells him that there is a secret society working together with the aliens. The aliens are devious and dangerous. They're abducting people. They're harvesting DNA. We are not in a position to fight against them. We're doing our best. The shadow government has relations with them in underground bases and bunkers. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that tends to the militia movement about how the Constitution will inevitably soon be suspended and the world government will emerge and we are all going to be subject, like, kind of slaves. And this is where it starts to get really familiar to us when we're reading it, because he's talking about how there are going to be fake school shootings. Right. That are done with crisis actors. The purpose of that being that the the American government will then take everybody's guns. Yeah. He's talking about how there will be pandemics. Right. That that people will be infected with deliberate uh, viruses in order to reduce the population. Yeah. Like so many of the conspiracies that we see now, even if people don't realize that they're influenced by Cooper. That's where he's the great synthesizer, which has its origins for a lot of it. I was also reminded of the FEMA death camps. So the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is the group that comes in if there's been like a terrible natural disaster, forest fires or floods or those kinds of things. He is one of the first, to my knowledge, and again, I think this, because I'm not that familiar with American militia conspiracies of the late 80s and early 90s, but it seems to pick up on their rhetoric that this is an organization whose intention is to suspend the Constitution. And so what they're going to do through the guise of FEMA is they're going to suspend they, the secret government that really is running the show the satanic ones when the time is right they will use disasters maybe even of their own creation and suspend democratic governments and then basically do whatever they want our guns have already been taken away and the aliens are already here and One in 40 people, he says, have been implanted with government devices, which he's not quite sure what they do. And yet he goes on to say that they probably have alien origins and these are alien sleeper agents and they will be turned on. And that's it. We've got the good versus evil, but the deck is really stacked in favor of the satanic side. And so he is the lone voice in the wilderness kind of prophesizing this impending doom and trying as hard as he can to get other people to also proselytize what's going to happen. And that's just the chapter on secret government. Mm -hmm. Like that's all there. Like from Kennedy to Nixon to FEMA to underground bunkers to MJ-12, the whole thing, it's all there. I tried to make it a bit more coherent than he did, but you know, Like, that's why this book is a bit, you really have to wrestle some meaning out of it. Well, and not only that, but he also starts to change his mind about some things. Oh, sure does. Including all this. Especially, like, and (laughs) I think that's the move we have to make now. So here he has a a totalist world system, which explains all things. What is the explanation to all things? 
it's the, it's them damn aliens. Yeah. The aliens are behind it, and the evil satanic government's working with the aliens. But the aliens are ultimately kind of the drivers of all of this. What happens to his relationship to this idea of aliens? Amazingly, he completely changes his mind and comes to the conclusion that actually, this is all a smokescreen for what's really going on, which is what's really going on is that there is this secret society. They want to create a world government, but in order to do that, they need to create a world-threatening enemy. He finds a transcript of a conversation in 1917 where I think John Dewey, who was like in, in part responsible for the American education system as it is, is talking, I think, with the Japanese vice count or ambassador or somebody and says that if the world had a common enemy, it would unite under a world government. And he's like, see, this is the plan. This has been the plan of the secret underground world government, which weirdly is already extremely extensive and Seems to be already in control. almost everything, but it's still their plan. And then he cites a whole bunch of other people, including this Ronald Reagan speech from, I guess it's 83. We'll put in a clip now. Yeah. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And clearly he's talking about, like, it's a, it's a thought experiment. God forbid an American president ever does a thought experiment. But, you know, he's putting a hypothetical out there. And Cooper sees this as a game. Aha, what a giveaway. What a giveaway. Proof positive. All the way back to 1917, he's got other examples like this. That actually the whole alien thing is a hoax meant to generate the illusion of a common enemy so that the Illuminati or whatever we call the under... he doesn't. I mean, really he calls care. them the Illuminati. He does call... But he says, yeah, you call them the Bilderbergs or... The MJ-12. Or, the, or the Jasons or who knows what. They're all branches of the same shadowy government that that will then be established. And so I encountered one of the most amazing example, like reasons for why the moon landing was a hoax. Again, he's going to take every conspiracy and put it into this. Earlier, he believed in the alternative three hypothesis. So we've already been to the moon and we have bases there. Right. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is in fact all a ruse. But so is the actual, you know, Apollo 11 moon landing because he claims we wouldn't buy into an alien conspiracy if we hadn't already demonstrated that space flight was possible. And so we fake a moon landing in order to get people believing that going into space is possible and therefore will become more accepting of the alien extraterrestrial hypothesis. Also, right. that's what all the alien movies have been about. Right. Getting because, us of course, primed. everything everything is in on it. Everything is always part of a conspiracy. It's so, conspiracism. So, again, to recap, all that stuff that, that Lee said earlier about 
you know, the, the secret harvesting by the aliens and the cover-ups and the EBE, that's all in this book. Yep. And then in the book, he changes his mind. Changes his mind. And he's like, wait, no, there are no aliens. Spaceflight is impossible. This whole thing, that's why all of those other alien hypothesis guys are all feds. Yeah. Bob Lazar, Area 51, it's all just more psyops. Everything is a psyop. Yeah. Even the people who say you're being psyoped are psyoping you. Right. Like this is, at this point, your, your paranoia consumes everything. And we have a problem as analysts. I mean, not that we could ever change William Cooper's mind if we, were, if we had been able to meet him, but you enter a world in which there is no falsifiable moment. There is no statement that you could make where you could challenge a person who holds this view because everything is part of the grand illusion. Uh, like, yeah, because I would challenge him on his idea that the Apollo 11 mission was faked so that we would believe in space travel so that we would believe in the possibility of alien invasion, people were talking about alien invasion in the early 50s. Yeah. That was an idea that was already, people were fully committed to long before we had anything like a space program. Mm -hmm. So that's just factually inaccurate. Ah, but that's the movies who are preparing the way for you to accept, right? There's just no, there's no outside which provides you the leverage to be able to critique a theory that has encompassed everything as part of evidence for the conspiracy. It is, but it's such an amazing move for him to have gotten so deep into the alien lore and then mid-book reject it all as part of the conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's got to be like that final uh, dopamine hit, right? Where you're like, I got the truth. No, because then I, I come along and I say, wait a second. I think William Cooper was a fed. Right. And he was feeding us this <laughs> so we wouldn't believe in the real alien invasion that's actually been going on since the, the crash in Aztec. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention, though, as part of, I think, his cultural impact is that exactly this theory was then televised in a very successful television franchise, The X-Files. It yep. is really as though they took Behold a Pale Horse as a general outline for the script of the 11 seasons, 9 seasons? I can't Too many. Remember. Too many seasons where... They begin with this extraterrestrial hypothesis. Then in the middle, they seem to change their mind. And they're like, eh, actually, the whole alien thing is a cover for just government shenanigans and government conspiracies. Mm-hmm. Now, unlike Cooper, the X-Files then reverts back, I think, to their earlier thesis. Well, Cooper didn't get any more seasons after this. Well, that's it. And I think that in part, though, speaks to why his ideas have had such longevity. Because, yeah, the book was for a kind of, you know, underground... It's not self-published, but it might as well have been. But it's, you know, it's not like a bestseller, and yet it kind of is in its genre. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that would have had the cultural impact without X-Files. And it's, again, this kind of feedback loop between pop culture and conspiracy culture. And then Cooper becomes very influential in the militia movement. Yeah. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, mm-hmm. who, of course, is one of the Oklahoma City bombers. Yep. He has 
Cooper's material when they when they raid his home, they find some material that that he was sent by Cooper. Wow. He had sent away because Cooper was like distributing stuff and producing stuff. This gets Cooper the attention of the feds. Right. Which is why you're sitting in front of like what? 200 pages of FBI 300, documents? 300 pages of FBI documents that I've been going through. Heavily redacted. And that's Cooper's file. That's Cooper's this FBI is Cooper's, file. Cooper's FBI file. And as we said, eventually Cooper would be gunned down by the cops. Yeah. So after he puts out Pale Horse, a bunch of things happen that seem to prove to Cooper that he is onto something. Yeah. Because think about some of the events that happened in the 1990s. We have the Ruby Ridge standoff. Mm-hmm. We have the Waco, Texas standoff. Yep. We have two examples of government, at the very least, incompetence yep. and overreach. Yep. And at most, like murder. Yep. We have organized murder on the part of the government against groups that would have sympathized with Cooper and that Cooper would have sympathized with. And so Cooper becomes increasingly convinced it's like, well, look at what the government just did at Ruby Ridge. Look what they just did mm-hmm. at Waco. It's happening. It's on. It's, it's going on right now. In 2001, Cooper says that the American government is going to increasingly blame this guy Osama bin Laden for stuff. Yeah. And they're going to pull off something big, and they're going to blame it on bin Laden. He says this before September 11th. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, September 11th happens. Yep. A month later, Cooper's dead. Yep. And when you hear that, like, how can you not find that suspicious? Sure. How can you not think that there's something sinister going on there? And then how does that not then make you think, damn, Cooper must have been on to something? Yeah. Now, do you want to get into the specifics of his death or do you want to do that in another episode? Well. Do you want to keep this one as, the, as just the alien I stuff? I feel like we keep it as just the alien stuff. Okay, we're not done with Cooper, though. Cooper's coming back when we do the Secret Society stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I want to do a whole episode just on Cooper's relationship with the hip-hop community. Yeah, okay. So was this episode done then? I don't know. Did you want to say more? You're sitting in front of 300 pages. Yeah, but this is mostly not UFO-related. Okay. This is, this is militia stuff. Okay. I want to just say, I mean, curious about your take on it. I feel like Cooper is a real cultural influencer. Yeah. Back in the day, we didn't have that term, but... He's almost in a way like the Gray Barker of the next generation. Different from Gray Barker, who knew he was a scammer, etc. We've established that. But similar in the sense that his theories influence so many conspiratorial movements after him. And he is, in one way or another, related to so much of what comes after him. That I think you can't understand what's happening today without knowing what Cooper was doing in the 90s. And I found, as I was reading Behold a Pale Horse and listening to some of his radio shows and his public talks, I was really struck by the things that I had been hearing earlier in the summer with the UAP hearings, these kind of underground bases, there's a secret government. I mean, really, when you listen to David Grush's testimony... It sounds like he has taken William Cooper essentially as descriptive history and 
that makes a lot of sense of those hearings where we're talking to elected officials who themselves don't know what the deep state is doing and that the, there's other elements in the government who are keeping this kind of alien stuff secret from us. And it seems so outrageous, but it too has a lineage in the history of conspiratorial thinking and lore that goes back to William Cooper. And I feel like knowing that is really important in the discourse that we're in today. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, when you're telling people that they're in a crooked game, I think you're going to get a willing audience. Sure. Because the truth is we are. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that governments get up to, that intelligence agencies get up to. Like, this isn't news to anybody. It's certainly not news to us. It's not news to anybody listening to this. The tragedy is... Cooper tried to take a bunch of different stories and turn them into one story. That He wanted something that explained everything. He wanted something that explained all the crookedness. The crookedness is deep. The crookedness is complicated. The crookedness is messy. And the crookedness has all sorts of different causes. We want there to be a cause so we can point at it and be like, okay, we just fix this, we fix the crookedness. And that's the appeal of a book like this. And that's the appeal of a worldview like this. That's always the appeal of a totalist worldview. There's something amazing about getting clarity, even when that clarity is incorrect. Because, as you said, he was a collector. There's some stuff, when you're reading this book, you come across and you're like, oh, well, okay, that's, that's sort of true. And then, oh, wait, no, that's, that's a bit misunderstood. And no, this is just from a movie. And this <laughs> is from like a disinformation campaign. Yeah. But... The totalist worldview just puts it all together into one story. Oh, in the case of Cooper, two stories, right. because his story radically changes halfway through. Yeah. But it, it was almost like he started to feel like that first totalist worldview about the evil aliens. There was stuff that didn't fit in, but he needed another totalist worldview to replace the one that he was losing. And so he jumped ship from the one totalist worldview about the evil aliens being true to the one about the evil aliens being a PSYOP on part of the Illuminati. 